Mike, would you come up and uh, let me pray for you? You guys welcome this guy up here. Mike Brown's our community pastor, friend for 20, oh gosh, 23 years, 24, something like that. Yeah, okay, so this dude's near and dear to my heart. So let me pray for him and invite um, God's power to, uh, to be on him as he brings the word. Father, thank you for Mike. Thank you for, um, thank you for the good man that you've made him to be. Thank you for the preparation that he's put into this message. Thank you for what you're going to do in him and through him as he preaches. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharp enough to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So we humbly invite you to speak through us, speak to us through Mike. Would you lay your hand on him, calm any nerves, and cause him to, uh, to speak your word clearly? Thank you, Lord. We lift Mike to you, and we lift ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joel. Good morning. As he said, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and it's truly a privilege and honor to be here this morning. Um, first of all, I just uh, I cannot <laughs> uh, contain like the awe that has just been hitting me this week as I hear not just the number, like the number is amazing, but like the things that God is doing in people's hearts. Like it's just amazing. I'm so excited to be a part of this church. And I've been saying that for years um, but I've just loved, especially my family, uh, on this journey with you, being drawn into what God has for us, and I look forward to what he does. And so um, as we step back as a church into the book of Acts, not that we've been away from it, but into the passage-by-passage passage exposition of it, um, I was really shocked to see how this fits so beautifully with where we are as a church today. So uh, yes, we are getting back into Acts 9, where we kind of left off, but uh, it fits really, really well with where we are as a church um, there are times in my life where I feel like God is kind of messing with me. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like this is one of those times uh, because, um, if, uh, you know, as Joel said, I'm the community mission pastor here at this church. I've been on staff full time for about eight years. And every summer, pretty much since I started, I've gone to Hungary with a team of people. We go and we support missionaries over there. And so you can guarantee that if there's going to be a Sunday during the year that I'm not in this country, it's going to be the first Sunday in July. And for some reason, even though I only preach like a couple times a year, I'm usually scheduled for that Sunday. I don't know what happens or why we keep missing those uh, overlaps, but every year I have to to kind of like, nope, still not here. Can we switch? Can we swap? And the, the reconfiguring that got me here today was just fascinating, all of the ideas and swapping between Art and Steve and Matt. But um, so I was like, okay, cool. It's a little sooner than July 1st, but I'd love to jump into it anyway. And I started reading this passage. And if you've read ahead, uh, you know that we're talking about miracles today. And if you know, the last time I was up here, we talked about miracles. And it's making me wonder, God, like, why, what are you doing? Why am I the guy who preaches on miracles at our church? Um, a little, a little scary uh, or exciting, depending on where you go with it. But regardless, um, I'm really excited to be here. And I, uh, I'm grateful for God giving me the opportunity to be in this with you. And so um, I just want us to jump in. Uh, if we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, we have some we'd like to get into your hands. Uh, seriously, put your hand up. One of the elders would be more than happy to bring a Bible to you. Um, you know, a lot of you guys use your phones. That's totally great. I'm still one of those guys who for some reason loves pages and t feeling it. So if you'd like one, we do have some, please uh, let them know. They'll bring one to you. But we're going to be in Acts 9. 
uh, starting in verse 32, and you can follow along with me on the screen um, while I read it. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they re- then they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this passage, we have two miracles. And if you remember what we preached on a few months ago, um, the miracles are amazing. And we don't really talk about them, and we don't really know what to do with them. And honestly, I don't think we recognize them a lot of the time. But here we have a man who was paralyzed for eight years because of some sickness, and he was given the ability to walk, which is fascinating. Like, it's just amazing. But we have a, a woman who died and was raised to life. That only happens a few times in the Bible. We could probably talk about the rest of the time and just sit in the wonder and uh, awe that comes with that. I would love to do that. Um, but I do believe there's something else going on here because while those are incredible stories and they have incredible similarities to what Jesus was doing in his ministry, which, as we've said before, is the fulfillment of John 14, uh, the works that I do, you also will do. While it's also that there's something that God is doing here that I've noticed, that he's, he's writing a story. And, and Luke is telling this story about the way in which God is growing his kingdom. And that's the reason I'm excited about this today, because as we've watched God work in our midst, he's moving and he is growing his kingdom. And we are a church that is a part of God doing that. And so I I pray that as we look at this passage together, that we're going to see a few things. That we're going to see, one, that God will fulfill his plans and purposes in growing his kingdom. Two, that God grows his kingdom in power. And three, that the spread of the gospel brings peace that God will fulfill his plans and purposes in growing his kingdom, that God grows his kingdom in power, and that the spread of the gospel brings peace. So, 
God will fulfill his plans and purposes. Uh, to get a glimpse of what this looks like, we really have to gather some of the context of this book. And so it's been a while, so I want us to look back at Acts 1-1, because that's going to help paint a little bit of a picture about how we got where we are in Acts 9. It says in Acts 1-1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Remember, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, which he was writing to Theophilus, and the book of Acts is like the second volume of that is kind of follows that, that story. Verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. And here's the key, speaking about the kingdom of God. When Christ was raised from the dead, he spent his time on this earth speaking about the kingdom of God, calling his disciples into it, pointing to what it was like and what it would be, and ultimately how it was actually already there, but pointing and driving to that, the kingdom of God. Verse 6 uh, says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that last part that uh, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and uh, in Samaria and to the end of the earth um, is Luke describing the continuing work that Jesus is doing in and through his people. Uh, now, we're not, we're not going to get into a theological discussion on what this means, because I know a lot of people might have different takes on what that means. But for, for us, these are real places, geographical locations that had real physical implications for what God was doing in his church, which I think is really fascinating. Um, so if you're like me, or you're perhaps one of those people who's been known to like a good map, as some might say, I have one for us, because I love maps, and I think they're incredibly helpful. So this is a a remake of a map of Israel in the New Testament around this time. And hopefully, if you can read some of the names, I'm going to try to help you. Uh, you'll notice that um, there are some names that you recognize from this passage. We've got this area right here, Judea, right here, and Samaria. They talked about Galilee earlier in the chapter. And then the cities of Lydda and Joppa. And then you've got the Mediterranean Sea here, the Dead Sea here, the Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River. Um, the reason that's important is because this is what God is doing. He's talking about how Jerusalem, which is the capital city. Sorry, I didn't show you that one in case you can't see. It's this circle right here. That's Jerusalem. Uh, you got Jerusalem and then all of Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. Now, that end of the earth part is actually really, really important uh, because... The, the purpose of Jesus coming and sending his disciples was to reach the Jewish world first. But once the Jewish world was reached in Judea and Samaria and all those regions, he would then be sending them to the end of the earth. And most of us, not all of us, but most of us in this room are Gentiles. And if that clause wasn't there and fulfilled, like we'd be missing out on something right now. But praise God, he did put it in there and he was fulfilling it. And that's actually what's happening here. Now, you might have been asking, like, but didn't Saul go to Damascus a few weeks ago? Yes, he did go to the northern area of Syria. He went to Damascus. But he was going to the synagogue, so he was really talking to Jews. And didn't Philip reach an Ethiopian? Yes, he did. But Philip's a really cool dude who did some amazing things that seem a little unique to the rest of the story. What we're going to hear next week, and I hope Steve's going to talk about this because it's pretty important, uh, the story of Cornelius... <laughs> 
Take notes, dude. The story of Cornelius and what God did through this man in bringing Peter to him has incredible implications for those of us as Gentiles. And so we're, we're building up to that. But what's happening here is the fulfillment of everything else. So in Acts 8, Peter and Philip both are kind of roaming around Samaria in that area. And you can see on the map that Samaria, this area right up here, is, uh, isn't too terribly far. Uh, so Peter is kind of walking up around in this area. And then it says, it's uh, in verse 32, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he's kind of traveling around. He came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now Lydda is an important city. You can also probably see this. The lines that are going through uh, intersect at Lydda. There's two major highways. One that went from Egypt in the south all the way up to Syria in the north. And anyone who traveled that road, which would have been a lot of people, went through Lydda. And then Joppa, which is a very important port city for uh, Israel, connected a highway from Joppa to Jerusalem. So if anyone was coming, coming from the Mediterranean to Jerusalem, or they were coming from Egypt to the north, they went through Lydda, which means this man who'd been paralyzed for eight years was known by a lot of people in a lot of places. And that's incredibly significant because Peter comes, meets this man, and he says to him, which is very reminiscent of what Jesus did in Luke 5 with the paralytic who was lowered through the ceiling by the four friends. He says, rise. And he even says, make your bed here, which is very, it's a mat. He's like, make your bed, roll it up. It's the same idea. Take up your bed and walk. Peter looks at him and he says, Jesus Christ heals you. And when Peter says those words, Aeneas gets up. And this is the amazing part. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. So we got Lydda and we have the plain of Sharon, this huge area. They saw him, all of them, and they turned to the Lord. This man who had been known by many had been healed. And this miraculous healing, which was done by the power of the name of Jesus Christ, expanded the church. Okay, we're going to jump to the next story, which might seem a little weird because you're like, wait, 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 let's stop there for a minute. They fit together really, really well, so we're going to immediately enter into. So Peter is in Lydda, and because he's in Lydda, uh, this woman in Joppa gets sick and dies. And everyone from Joppa is like, go get Peter, he's close by. So it's about 11 miles away, so it's really not that far. They go and get Peter, and they say, please don't wait, please come with us. So Peter heads on up there, and, um, and I love when it, says, when it says things like this. It says, um, uh, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I love when it explains ancient languages for us because part of me feels like the readers should have known that, but it's really helpful to us. But I'm also a little confused because, I mean, Tabitha's, uh, uh, I know people named Tabitha. I don't know a whole lot of people named Dorcas. Um, but, but this is what's interesting. Dorcas is the Greek name. And Tabitha is the Aramaic name, and the Aramaic language is what Peter and the disciples would have spoken. So she was probably called Dorcas because she lived in a Greek city, but she was, uh, in this story, they're emphasizing, no, we're going to call her Tabitha because that's her name in Aramaic. And that's going to make sense in just a minute. So she's this very well-known, very well-respected woman who becomes sick and dies, and they go through the normal burial process before Peter gets there. So many believe that Peter actually knew Tabitha, and there's a really good possibility of that because Tabitha was so loved, and she was an amazing disciple who just cared for the people of her city, really the outcasts, the neglected 
uh, they're forgotten. She, she cared for the widows. The widows, it says they're sitting there, it says the widows stood beside him weeping. They were devastated that this woman was gone because she had loved them so well. And the garments, the word that they use there has both the meaning of outer garments like cloaks and tunics and really you know, significant clothing, but also undergarments, which are really necessary as well. She took care of them completely. She poured herself out for them. She loved them well. And they're sitting there wearing their garments and holding their garments, weeping over the loss of their dear friend, Tabitha. So Peter comes out of respect for this honorable saint, and he does something that is incredibly similar to what Jesus did. In Mark 5, uh, there's a man named Jairus. He was a synagogue ruler, and his daughter was sick. And he comes to Jesus in Mark 5, and he says, please, Jesus, come. My daughter is sick. I know you can heal her. And Jesus says, okay. And so they start to go. They hear later that um, uh, she's, she's died, and they're on their way. And Jesus, and they said to Jesus, please don't bother the teacher anymore. Leave him alone. And Jesus says, no, let me go. And so he goes. Now, earlier in Mark 5, it says that Peter, James, and John, he took with them, and he left the rest of them there. And so as he goes, and it says in Mark 5, verse 40, it says, um, but he put them all outside, all of them except for Peter, James, and John, and the mom and the dad. So he takes those and he goes in and he says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, rise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. Again, this is a miracle. She was dead and Christ brought her back to life. I really wish that we could just sit in this more because we don't let miracles in the Bible hit us the way they should. But what's cool about this is that 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 word, little girl, Talitha, when Mark uses it in Aramaic, is only one letter difference than Tabitha. And what Luke is doing here is he's pointing and he's saying, don't miss this. The works that Jesus did, his disciples would do. Jesus says, Talitha, rise. Peter says, Tabitha, rise. And you know else who, who didn't miss it? It was Peter, because Peter was in that room. Peter was with Jesus when he did this. I can't imagine what's going on in Peter's mind when he's like, I'm doing the thing he did, the exact thing with one letter difference that he did. He's, uh, he's in me. He's moving through me. And when this girl comes to life, he shows her to the saints. It says in verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. I also love what Peter does here because it says he falls to his knees, like he recognizes that this is not his power. This is not his doing. He has no ability in and of himself to bring this girl back to life, but he trusts God. He pleads with God. He begs, and this woman, this cherished woman in the, in the city is brought back to life. Tabitha and Aeneas rise and walk and the kingdom of God grows. Now, back to the to God fulfilling his plans and purposes. Uh, These passages are transitional episodes between the apostles reaching the Jewish world and the spread to the Gentiles. Um, Because really, if you look at it, up through chapter nine, God's been telling a story and it's really all about the Jews. He's been going to the synagogues. He's been in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. He's been around that area. And something is happening here. We have to kind of pick up in verse 31, which is right before this passage. And it says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. This is demonstrating that the mission of the Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria is being completed, which is important. Again, it had to be completed uh, because 
all the way to the coast. We saw all the regions, Sharon and Joppa and Lydda, all the way to the coast because it's a preparation for the next movement, what God is preparing to do as he moves out to the Gentile world. And by the way, it, we'll figure out this out next week, but it puts Peter in a really strategic, advantageous position geographically because by being in Joppa, this allows what happens in chapter 10 to, co- to be a lot easier. If he's down in the south or in Galilee or in Jerusalem, no, he's in the right place at the right time for what God is going to be doing, which again, again, really matters to us Gentiles. But if we see that in Acts 1-8, that God is fulfilling his work, that the gospel is being spread to all Judea and Samaria before it moves to the end of the earth, it makes me step back and realize like, that God is a very intentional God. Like, it's not a coincidence that Luke wrote in Acts 1 that God would be leading his people in this way, geographically, for the intent of what he'd be doing with his church globally. God is accomplishing his purposes and his plans. It's interesting that Acts 1.8 is a command, right? He's like, you will be my witnesses. It's like, go, be my witnesses in these places. But hopefully, you know by now, we're in a church where God does all the work, right? And because God does all the work, he both creates the plan and he puts it in the hearts of people to then follow and come after him and submit to him. He then draws out of them those who he loves and who love him to be a part of the plan, and he's the one driving it all. Like, yes, the command was a command, but God's the one who fulfills it. He's the one in us who's doing this work, which is why, as I've been preparing for this Sunday, I can't help but think of our church. Oh, man. It's those moments where someone once said that uh, when Satan fell, he fell into sound equipment, and I'm like... <laughs> It's so true. <laughs> okay. So as I've preparing, been preparing for today, I've been seeing God showing up in some amazing ways because I've been thinking of where our church is today. If you've only been here for a few months or a couple years and you haven't had a chance to go to a newcomer's event, like I really encourage you to do that because it kind of helps paint a picture of like where God has us as a church. Like over the past several years, he's been doing things that's... It's really remarkable to, to look at the story and where we are today. Like all the way back to like getting the cottage school in 2006 and slowly moving through that as God took us on a journey there and brought us here to this church or to this building and what he's been doing here and all the things. And I cannot help but look at all this and realize like he's doing something for his plans, for his purposes, for his glory. And what's amazing is nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. He's using all of it. And I cannot help but get more and more excited at the thought of the things that he is going to be doing in and through us as we follow him and see where he leads this body as he spreads his gospel for his glory. God will fulfill his plans and his purposes in growing his kingdom. That leads us to our second point, that God grows his kingdom in power. Uh, Again, I would love to talk about power for a long time because we serve a powerful God. Amen? I mean, and it's, I see it all the time around me, and I see it more the more I look for it, and I really hope that's true for you guys as well. When you look for the power of God showing up, it's everywhere. 
But as, long, as far as the book of Acts goes, like it's throughout. Every week we've been able to see the power of God moving from the time where Jesus ascends to where he breathes on his disciples to where the, uh, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them and fills them to go and preach the gospel in people's languages where they can ha- stand up boldly and preach sermons and draw many people to them even in the, spite, uh, in the place of being afraid of what might happen to them where people have seen signs and wonders taking place. We talked about a lame beggar who was raised his entire life. He never walked and he was given the ability to walk. We've seen people who have died because they neglected the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw Saul be converted in a miraculous event on the road to Damascus. We saw we, Philip is hilarious. He's supernaturally moving around all over the place. We don't even know how. God is moving in power and where he moves in power, the gospel is spread and he's growing his kingdom. And that's why this, this Sunday has been so amazing as we've been able to share as a body what God's done for this church. We've been able to see him show up again and again. And he, he did this. He did this. He's the one who's moving in our hearts and changing us and challenging us. It's so evident that God has been working in so many people's hearts, inviting us into something. And it's not about a building. And I think we know that. It's not about a building. It's about what God is doing in our hearts He is freeing us from from things that we're holding on to. He is challenging idols. He is forcing us to trust him because there's nowhere else to go. God, guys, we can't change hearts. You can modify your behavior pretty well. You cannot change your heart. Only God can do that. And he is doing it. And those are miracles. When people see the way that God shows up in power, his name is praised and he receives glory. And my prayer, guys, is that as we begin to reflect and realize this, that we would see that these miracles are, are worth talking about. After the time we, uh, after preaching on uh, Acts 3, it was funny because <laughs> I talked to so many people after that sermon who said, yeah, I've actually experienced God mirac- God's miraculous power in my life and I haven't wanted to talk about it for years I was like, yeah, that's exactly what Satan wants us to do is to keep quiet about it. But the number of stories I heard that were, there was no way to explain other than God showed up in a miraculous way. And, and here, he doesn't do that all the time. But when he does, I pray that we declare it because he receives glory and his gospel is spread. Uh, but that's only really part of it, which is leading us to our, our final point. Here we have two miracles that take place and they were very impactful miracles. The church is growing. Many were coming to know the Lord. But something else is happening, something besides these miracles leading to conversions. And that's this, that the spread of the gospel brings peace. Let's look back at Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied Now, the idea of the church being built up and multiplying, I think we can probably assume a lot about the church was growing. More churches were being planted. Uh, The gospel was penetrating hearts and going deeper. People's faith was growing deeper and the ministry was growing wider and more people were coming to know Jesus and churches were growing. But this peace part is really interesting. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. What does it mean to have peace? What does it mean for the early church to experience peace? The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Hopefully uh, a number of you probably know that. 
This uh, Jewish scholar says the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is derived from a root denoting wholeness or completeness. And its frame of reference throughout Jewish literature is bound up with the notion of shalumat or perfection. What a cool connection, right? Shalom and perfection. Its significance is thus not limited to the political domain, to the absence of war and enmity, or to the social, to the absence of quarrel and strife. It ranges over several spheres and can refer in different contexts to bounteous physical conditions, to a moral value, and ultimately to a cosmic principle and divine attribute. Shalom characterizes God. It's a divine attribute. When we think of peace, we probably go really shallow. It's cessation of war or just rest or quiet perhaps. Shalom carries with it so much more, which is why when people greeted each other with shalom, it had this deep meaning of May the things that God intended to be as they were be. May he be restoring all things to the way that they should be rightfully. And it's not a coincidence that we are reading and understanding shalom in verse 31 and miracles being exhibited in in verses 32 through 43. You know why? Because the church experienced peace. How do we know that? Because shalom was coming in. Because as the kingdom was being spread, God was entering in power and people were experiencing shalom. The world was becoming the way it was supposed to be little by little. The dead were raised, the lame walk, the sick healed. Shalom. And what's beautiful about that is that, this is again the whole picture, God is fulfilling his plan to reach those areas with shalom in order to be able to reach the full, the rest of the world, the end of the earth. He needed Judea and Samaria, those regions, to culminate in the full experience of peace. When the gospel spreads, it comes in power and it brings shalom. Now the reason that this is exciting, guys, for me, uh, is not because we're moving um, moving is actually kind of difficult, <laughs> which is why I'm never moving. <laughs> okay, Bay, thanks. Moving is difficult. The reason I'm not excited is because we're moving. It's not because we're moving to a new space that we get to like, we get to choose if there's enough snow to cancel church. <laughs> or that our kids get to play with all the things in the room. Those are exciting things, don't get me wrong. And by the way, I'm not even really excited because of the fact that there's this group of people that are all really excited about being all in. It's cool, but it's not the reason I'm excited. The reason I'm excited is because I'm seeing God grow his church and bring his kingdom, and in it he comes in power and he brings peace. And that's what I'm excited about for our church. I'm longing to see what he's going to be doing in us because right now he is preparing us for who he wants us to be when we move to Mansell, 1011 Mansell Road. I cannot wait for that because I realize that God is preparing us now. Amen. 
And the thing is, like, I know that this has been a really weird season for some people because this is not normal. We've never had to do this before because we've never had to do this before. And so we've been experiencing it in a really unique ways. But the more I talk to people, even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of confusion, I'm realizing that God's doing work. And it's not about, the, it's not about that. It's not about what we're giving. It's about what he's challenging in us here. He's breaking down idols in our hearts. He's freeing us from things. He's convicting us of sin. He's doing the work to prepare us because he wants for us to come and be a people who are experiencing shalom that we can go and bring shalom where we go. And God's work is going to go with us because it's his. It's all his work. And I can't wait for that. I long to be the kind of place, I long to be the kind of place where broken marriages and hurting relationships walk in these doors and shalom meets them right where they are and peace overwhelms the pain. I long to be a place where people are experiencing incredible hardship, where they're at the end of their rope and God meets them in remarkable ways, where, where sin is exposed and when light comes into those dark places, it's revealed to us and to our community and we get to look at it and say, God, what are you going to do here? Free me from this and redeems it. And I long to be the kind of place where self-righteousness crumbles as we realize that our sin is way greater and deeper than we can ever imagine. But from those depths, that God would speak the gospel over us, the full gospel, as it says in Galatians 3. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Guys, it's worse than you think it is. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And you know what's incredible about this? We are this kind of church. And I've been seeing it and hearing it time and time again. And it, it thrills me because I'm seeing what God has done and is doing. I've seen marriages that were falling apart be restored. I've seen relationships where there was estranged siblings or children or parents and God brought restoration. I've seen where our hearts have been broken in the sadness of the reality of the consequences of sin in a fallen world and God steps in and meets us there because it's what he's doing. And every time our hearts are changed, we're witnessing miracles. And I want to see more. I want these miracles to be the power that is spreading the gospel into more places, bringing more peace, and bringing more and more people to know him. One of the things I love about this is how it's very cyclical. Like, God steps in and he grows his kingdom. And when he grows his kingdom, he comes in power and he brings peace. And as people witness the power and the peace of God, the gospel is spread. When the gospel is spread, God comes and he meets them in power and in peace. When people witness the power and peace that God brings in, the gospel is spread. And my prayer, God, that you would be doing this in us. Lord, please, may we be a church where you are coming in power and bringing your peace and spreading your gospel that it would be seen more and more. And this is the promise that we have to hold on to, that when God moves, as it says in Job 42, his plans cannot be thwarted, and he moves in power, and he brings shalom. Now, uh, I want you to know that I've really wrestled with this this week, um, because I've, as I began to think and long for the shalom that we all want to experience, I know that right now in this body, there are people who are pleading with God for physical healing, for relational healing, for marital healing, for emotional healing, 
that we've experienced some of the deepest pains that we can ever imagine in our world. And he hasn't shown up in the way that, that we want him to. Uh, when I was in high school, I was, you know, they took those spiritual gift inventories and I was assigned the gift of faith, um, which, you know, when you're in high school, you're like, cool, I don't know what that means. Um, but I, I kind of attribute it to like almost a, uh, um, it feels like the gift of gullibility. <laughs> and if you know me and you spend any time with me, you know I'll, I believe most things. Um, Art was kind enough to say that I've definitely matured, which is good, thank God. <laughs> I turned 35 on Friday, so I'm getting some gray and feeling a little bit older, so hopefully that's changing a little bit. But, um, but I tend to automatically go to a place that I, is true, which is weird um, because you think that'd be a really good thing. But for some reason, I have this ability to, to be in the midst of incredible pain and turmoil and um, to jump to the rational place where I believe that God is real, that his word is true, and that he is good. And there is something really solid about that. And I've, in my, my life, I've actually done that a number of times where life has been incredibly difficult. And I've said, oh, yeah, but God is real. His word is true and he is good and I'm okay. But on the men's retreat, I was really challenged by this. And some of you men who were there might re- uh, relate relate to this, the fact that, like, Jesus didn't even do that. I think there's something noble about jumping to the rational reality that I believe God is good that was, was holy. And actually, God's looking at me and saying, it's not real. Because Jesus was on the cross and he was cr- crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if my Lord and Savior can look at his Father and scream in pain and agony and anger, why can't I? Because the truth of the matter is, guys, that when we are in this pain, you cannot go around it and land in a place that is solid. You have to go through it. You have to go through it. You have to step into it. And Jesus sits there with us like he did with Mary and Martha and weeps with us. But he wants to sit in the pain with you. He wants to walk through that part with you because that's when you get to the other side. And the peace that he promises is real and not just this rational idea. And the reason I can land there more and more as I am really challenged with this, and it's not easy for me. I want to go to the place that's safe. I want to land on the rational truth. It's just easier. No one wants to go through the pain. But here's the thing. We can't avoid it. Like, I think uh, as I worked on the sermon, like the past three days, I ran into people and started hearing just horrific trauma in the world. And I was talking to somebody and being like, are you trying to convince me that it's a broken world? Like, I know it is. And I was sad because I realized like, but I I don't think I do. I think I dismiss it too quickly. But I looked back at the early church and what happened with them. And if you look back and remember where they were when Jesus was resurrected, it says in John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were afraid. They were experiencing the troubles of this world and they were hiding themselves. And Jesus steps in and says, peace. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Not too long after this passage in Acts, hopefully we're going to be seeing more and more of it. 
the disciples received incredible persecution. Rome cracked down on them hard. They were put to death. They were tortured. It was miserable. The early life of the church did not experience peace as we would like to call it, which makes me sit there and realize that's not what God promises. It's not. Now, were there healings? Like, yes, there were. But in this story, there were two. Not 200, not 2,000, not 2 million, two. There's something about the way that God is fulfilling his work, his plans, and his purposes that there are times where he steps in and he does something miraculous. And we long for those. And I plead for those. And I pray for those for my own life and for yours. But what I believe God does is he promises us this in Philippians 4, 7. He says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that. He's there. He guards us with his peace. And, and there are many in this room who have experienced that. In the midst of incredible anguish, God has met you in peace. Because the, sh- the shalom that he speaks of is, has multiple layers, as it said. It's all over the place. But he does meet us, and he gets, gets us that peace in that moment. But I think one of the reasons why he meets us in that peace is because, A, he does not want to overwhelm us. But B, because there aren't, he's not always going to bring that full shalom in this world because he does promise. I love, by the way, I just want to say, like, the number of times that we sang songs that kind of showed up in here, I was amazed. But then the last scripture on the last slide was Revelation 21.4, which is that every tear he will wipe away and there will be no more sorrow. I was just amazed that God's putting this whole thing together. That's the eternal promise, guys. And I don't say that flippantly. I don't say that landing in a rational place where life is really hard, but God is good and he will wipe away every tear. I can't. I can't with integrity because I've experienced the pain and anguish of a world, a fallen world, where things don't make sense. And I know every single one of you right now can put the finger on the place in your life where he hasn't shown up and delivered you complete shalom. And I believe he does that to keep us with that tension of longing for heaven. Because that's when complete shalom will be felt. That is when his complete and full plans and purposes will be met and brought to fruition. But my prayer is that as we enter into the pain, as we step into the anguish, the trouble, the struggle, that we will begin to see that he is bigger, that he is a God who enters in and restores in power, and that he loves us, and that he's, he's doing beautiful things. He's leading us into beautiful places. Nothing is wasted. Everything that we've been experiencing as a church is for a purpose. It's for a reason. He's doing something. And that is why we have to remember that it's his work. Because even when we are not faithful, he is faithful. Even when we, we don't let him into those parts of our hearts because we want to hold on to something, he still does all the work, which is why we come to the table every single week. We need to be reminded every single week that we need him, that he has done for us that which we could not do for ourselves. Amen. And that as he's preparing us as a body for who he wants us to be, for where he's taking us, not a building, but on mission for his kingdom, that we have to remember that it's him and it's been him all along and it will continue to be him. And let's remember that. 
as we come and take the body and the blood. But if you know Jesus, if you have trusted him, this meal is for you. If you have not come to a place where you recognize your need for a savior, where you've not come to a place where you've trusted him to have done the work for you, that you needed someone to die for you, this meal isn't for you. But my question to you is, why not today? He loves you. He's given everything for you. And his promises of entering in power and bringing shalom are eternal and true. And he longs for you to know and experience them from him. He wants to have that relationship with you. If you have any questions, I would love to talk to you afterwards, as well as with any of the elders or communion servers. We want you to know that he loves you and that he wants you to come. Accept his atoning sacrifice for your sins. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who've put our faith there, this meal is for you. So let me pray. Father God, I am drawn more and more to the reality that you are a God so much bigger, whose plans are so beyond us. I can't even fathom the way you work things together and that nothing is wasted. I thank you, Jesus, that nothing is wasted, that no amount of pain in this world, no amount of suffering goes without your hand involved. Yes, meeting us in peace, but doing your work. And that as we experience your changing our hearts, we're experiencing miracles. Lord, may we see them for what they are and be drawn to you. So God, lead our church as you guide us, as you grow your kingdom, as you are the one fulfilling your plans and purposes and power, bringing peace. And as we come to this table, may you continue to remind us of the gospel that we need you, but that you gladly lavish yourself upon us, that you love us and you've given all things for us. And so Father, we trust you. We thank you for this and we lift all this Jesus, in your holy name, amen. You may come to the table.